I want to talk tonight about the judging mind. And I saw a cartoon a little while ago that kind of spoke to this tendency that I'm sure most of us are familiar with. It's by that uh, cartoonist Hilary Price. The strip is rhymes with orange. And it's this, this particular strip was entitled, As Medicine Advances. And the scene is a woman, a patient in a doctor's office sitting on that little uncomfortable examining table that they make you sit on, and the doctor's there with a clipboard, and she's obviously about to read the results from some tests that have been taken. And the doctor says, This MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. (laughs) So I don't know where the science has proved that yet, but meditation certainly does, doesn't it? And for most of us, this is our common experience, the mind full of commenting and narrating and this endless, endless chatter to ourselves. But what the, the problem with this is, is this commenting or narrating isn't usually neutral. It's not like, oh, isn't this lovely, and what about this? It's usually there with some kind of edge, with some kind of agenda, with some kind of criticism, constantly assessing how we're doing, how things are, inner, outer, self, other, and this sense of uh, evaluating, narrating with this critical intention all the time. And this is such a common experience. I know for me it was a great source of suffering um, that I decided to look into this a bit for my own um, well-being because I suffered from it so much. So I uh, did a workshop with this man called Byron Brown. He's uh, a teacher in the Diamond Heart School um, in the East Bay, led by A.H. Almas. He also wrote a book called Soul Without Shame, just to kind of really get a sense of what tools are there to work with this painful tendency of mind. And I found the book very helpful. In it, uh, Byron Brown says, Judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. I think this is really true, and that it's actually essential if this is a tendency of mind for us to begin to work with this mind, this this tendency. And mindfulness is actually a really powerful way to begin this process of working with and healing this, this source of suffering. Because as we keep stressing, the foundation of our mindfulness practice is acceptance, is bringing a kind, accepting, gentle awareness to our experience. So this is so essential. And we ex- it extends to all the levels of our experience, to accepting ourselves, accepting our inner experience, accepting our outer experience, and accepting others, the environment, accepting what is true in this moment. 
But this pain uh, that comes from judging is so huge in our culture, but certainly here on retreat, so many people come to the practice discussions talking about the challenge of this tendency of mind and how hurtful and painful it is. And yet what's actually sad about it is it's of our own creation. It's through this tendency to evaluate, to not be satisfied, to be negative or critical. As Carol said, that teaching, that she, the brief teaching about samsara is wanting to correct. And judging is just out of that tendency or that movement of things not being okay. And it's not just things aren't okay, we're not okay. So it's really very deep. And what I think it's important to recognize is that working with this tendency is not kind of a a, a distraction from our serious Dharma practice or getting deep in meditation or something, you know, that a few unhappy beings have to go through, but, you know, the rest of us are just sailing happily on. It's really very central to our practice, to have a sense of um, a a true acceptance, even a love of ourselves, and it's certainly an acceptance of our experience. And it is only through that deep caring and acceptance that we can begin the deeper and the challenging work of this path and practice that leads to wisdom and leads to freedom. So to really take that in, that this is important, powerful, and healing work, and very necessary for our journey. And even though guys giving these teachings on not-self and the creation of self, and in Buddhism it can, can sometimes seem like self is a problem, we need to acknowledge the self that we do create. And the, uh, Jack Engler, one of our friends and associates, has this great line that I think is so true, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And basically what he's pointing to is If there is a sense of self, it has to be a healthy sense of self for us to actually do the work of deconstructing the sense of self. If we do it from a place of lack or deficiency, we can end up in a kind of nihilist uh, attitude towards experience. So this challenge or this process of working on self-acceptance and self-love, really very important and very central to our path of practice. And for many of us, this is the place where we begin our practice. We come to the teachings to practice out of the suffering that's created by this mind that's constricted and caught in judging, caught in separation, caught in divisiveness. And we can spend many years in our practice going through this process of purification and learning to accept and love ourselves. And as I said, it's really very important because it's only when the mind has this sense of ease and freedom that it can turn to the truths of impermanence, that it can turn to look clearly and closely at the way things are because it's able to really connect with experience and isn't holding back in some way. And it's also, of course, how we can deepen the practices of metta and compassion that are directly about love and caring about suffering. So it's a very common experience that we start with the very personal 
in our practice, our stories, our history, our emotions, our conditioning. And then at some point, or woven through that, becomes the more impersonal understandings. Carol spoke the other night about impermanence and and the the teachings on not-self. But we start right where we are. And in this process of working with an understanding and acceptance of our conditioning, it's very central to being able to then open up. So it's a very common trajectory to have in practice. But we need to really acknowledge the the relevance or the power or even the necessity of this kind of practice, of working with the healing that can happen through meditation. The Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. It's quite a radical statement of valuing this sense of caring as a foundation for, of course, deepening our metta and compassion, but also, as I said, for for deepening in the wisdom aspect of the practice as well. But for many of us, as we sit down and begin to meditate, quieten the mind, look at our inner experience, what we start to see is the, the, the energy behind or the preponderance of old habits, old patterns, our neuroses, our conditioning, and our memories of past hurts and fears and griefs and longings, uh, inner and outer. And we can just see how there's this conditioned nature to our experience built up over all of these years of having it be patterned in that way and reinforced. And many of us have actually learnt to be self-critical. We've taken that on as a stance towards ourselves. We learn it from our family history, from our peers, from schooling, and certainly from the culture, this tendency to be judgmental. And can even go so far to internalize a message that we're not good enough, that we're deficient in some way, And it can operate on many or all areas of life, on our looks, on our physique, on our intelligence, on our athletic ability, our scholastic ability, our quickness, our whatever it is. This, we can use that as a source of judging, you know, whether we can sing on key or not. For some people, even doing the chanting in the, in the evening is a traumatic kind of experience because we feel as we wobble in and out of what we think it should sound like. And so we have that tendency to think, not good enough, not okay. And this can even deepen and harden into believing that we're bad or wrong in some essential way. And this is such a painful way to relate to ourselves, to to have this message uh, be reinforced over and over again. So in working with this for myself and helping others to look at this, I've come to see it's really helpful to see the conditioned nature of these kind of beliefs and to even begin to understand how they came to be formed. So a little bit of reflection or introspection is helpful because that's how we can begin to let go of 
this belief or these messages, as we see their conditioned nature, as we see how we actually took them up in some way, shape, or form. And that can be the beginning of letting go of them as stories that we no longer need to believe. Until we're willing to actually turn and face these beliefs, these messages, we're going to believe them. They're going to continue to play out in one form or another, and we're going to be stuck in some essential way, in that way of relating to ourselves and to others. Just a a couple of weeks ago, before the retreat started, uh, I watched a documentary on Woody Allen. It was an American Masters series, two-part documentary, sort of retrospective of his whole life. And talk about the epitome of self-judging and neuroses. I mean, he's our kind of iconoclast for uh, manifesting that. And he, of course, had done years of therapy, of of Freudian... I think it was Freudian analysis, you know, literally day, you know, days a week, week after week, year after year. He's still neurotic, but he is still funny. Um, and you really see how his humor is a lot built around that view he has of himself as not being okay and all of his fears that come out of that. And he has a whole thing about death. I mean, it was really funny to see, you know, his early beginnings as a gag writer and then a, a stand-up comedian and being on kind of talk shows. I, you know, I didn't never watch television in those times, so I didn't, hadn't seen that before. I mean, he is amazingly funny, you know, with his lines like this. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. There's <laughs> a real fear of death. And there's always a spiritual theme through his work. You know, he's contemplating all the time, you know, what is the nature of existence? What, what, what are we here for? Um, but he always had it a little bit off. So there was one line, I am at two with nature. One with nature. And then I saw this one too. I was thrown out of college for cheating on the metaphysics exam. I looked into the soul of another boy. So you could just see, you know, this, he was always judging, evaluating, questioning, and yet here he was. I, I don't know how old he is now. He must be getting close in his 70s, I think, at least. And there was a really telling moment at the end, you know, it was towards the end of the documentary, at, at the age he is now, where he just was reflecting on all of the success that he's had. I mean, he's one of the most prolific and su- su- successful filmmakers of the day, achieved everything he could have dreamed of. He even said that, you know, all these awards, Oscars, his actors get Oscars and, you know, adulation and fame and money. And then he said, there was nothing in my life that I aspired to that hasn't come through for me. But despite of all these lucky breaks, why do I still feel that I got screwed somehow? I mean, you draw kind of dropped, you know, ha- to just keep holding on to that sense of deficiency, not okay, I'm not appreciated, it's not worthwhile, with everything that he's achieved. And this is how strong that tendency can be. So the Buddha talked about this tendency of mind, he called it mana, M-A-N-A, and the literal translation is conceit, but it doesn't mean conceit as in pride, it just means comparing. And we can compare as something being better than or ourselves being better than, worse than, or even the same as is still a form of comparing that can bring 
suffering. And it, it, it manifests in all the different ways of judging that, that I've been speaking about. And often at the center of it is this lack of self-acceptance, lack of feeling okay about ourselves. And that's often the source of then judging others or feeling judged as we project judgment out to others our assumption is that they're judging us. And so we're just kind of caught in this vicious cycle of judgment that keeps being reinforced. And again, as I was reflecting on how prevalent and how quick, how, how pervasive this experience of judging is for myself, and I see it in so many other people, I really got to see that it has a very kind of primal cause it's almost part of our animal nature, you know, as it wasn't that long ago that we were out there, you know, on the savannah or whatever, evolutionarily speaking, and the main question we were asked day after day is, do I eat it or does it eat me? And we had to decide very quickly, you know, how safe was this environment? And I always think that, you know, our ancestors who noticed the rustling in the bushes and said, ah, what could go wrong? You know, don't let's worry about that. Well, they're probably not here. They're probably not our ancestors. They were the ones that got eaten and we're the product of the people that said, "Uh oh, you know, let's get out of here. There's something there that's dangerous. And so this sense of vigilance of having to monitor our environment as to whether we're safe or not, it's still in there. Even as we live in the 21st century, even as we float around here at Spirit Rock, that's, I mean, in some ways as safe a place as there can be, we can still feel this sense of not being safe and that vigilance that comes out of that and therefore feeds the judging mind, this sense of needing to know what's out there. I read this great book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel that was about the evolution of human civilizations and how they evolved very differently in one place or another. And a lot of it was dependent on the resources that were available, but it was just interesting having it kind of laid out the way um, we as humans have developed. And again, in an evolutionary terms, it wasn't that long ago. He said 7,500 years ago when the automatic response to meeting a stranger was to kill them because they, and if you didn't know them, they were your enemy. You know, there was, we were living in tribal cultures and there was just a sense of, you know, that was safe and anything outside wasn't safe. And so that's all there in us, that sense of need, you know, not knowing what's safe or not. So it helps me to kind of relax a little about this tendency. It's not so personal. It's very much a part of our wiring, our DNA, you could say. But what's happened is it's gotten really distorted. That this, this, this vigilance that we needed to have, and sometimes still need to have to a certain degree, we need to know, you know, where's a safe environment or not, or went across the road, but it has gotten distorted over, over the centuries to where it can become a kind of neurotic fear about things that, aren't actually unsafe, or, as I said, turned inwards to a lack of feeling safe in our inner experience of not accepting or feeling safe with ourselves. And the media, all of the 
swamp of the media that we live in in these days, you, you can't really avoid it, kind of perpetuates this sense of differentiating and judging and comparing. It used to be we had very few people to compare ourselves to, the family, the tribe, a little town or village. Now we can compare ourselves to virtually anyone in the world because they're in our living rooms every time we turn the television on. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, you know, all of those things that are, are put out there as to how people live. And that's held up as, as, as being better or valuable. And so we can feel diminished in our own uh, experience and, and um, uh, possessions, way of living. Reality shows... When will that trend end? I'm praying for the day that somehow, somewhere, we all get sick of watching reality shows. They're all about judging and comparing and being mean, actually tearing people down, um, criticizing, trying to use you know, our knowledge of people's weakness to advantage, really celebrating these tendencies. And that's part of how we get lost in that and why it's, it's being reinforced in the culture. Of a teacher, Sony Rinpoche, who grew up in a Tibetan family, um, pro- not in Tibet, he actually had left, but in Nepal, in Nepal and quite in a Tibetan culture. And he says when he started to learn about this and understand this tendency of mind, he started calling it the disease of the West. He said, in my family, in, in, in my culture as I grew up, we didn't have this sense of especially lack of self-love. He said, every child that came into a family was loved and accepted for their strengths and their weaknesses. But he's seen what he calls this disease spreading, and that as many cultures get westernized, places like Singapore, Taiwan, etc., he's seeing that tendency grow there. And so it's almost become an epidemic of self-judging, self-criticism, self-hatred. Really very sad. But it's understandable, again, when you step back and look at this process of conditioning that we've all been subject to in one way or another. As Byron Brown says in, in the book Soul Without Shame, as children we had to learn social norms, how to get along, how to develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it became overactive and overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. It has come to see it can come to see that we can come to see that now this voice is not so helpful that it limits us and controls us because the basic message of this judging voice is that I'm not good enough and people won't like like me just as I am. And it follows with the kicker of, you'll never change. You haven't got what it takes. So we kind of feel helpless in the face of this judging voice, of this internalized message. Again, another quote from Byron Brown. The judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. 
And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do so are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judging voice. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with this judging voice and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So this voice that at first was a support for us and a guide for us, as I said, has become distorted in some way and actually has leads to a, a great source of suffering and, a, and an inability to truly open, to truly open to ourselves, to others, to our experience. But it's become so internalized, such a frame of reference, that we don't even notice that it's there, that it's operating. And this is where we really get caught and stuck. So to begin to understand this judging voice and how it operates, we really need to turn directly to it and notice how it's operating. Notice how we feed it. Notice how it plays out in our experience. When I was exploring this, I I think I mentioned I did a workshop with Byron Brown where we spent a whole day exploring this theme of judging and working with the, the judging voice. And as part of it, he had us do an exercise called a repeating question. Some of you may know this form where you get in a dyad and one person asks a question, the other person answers, and they ask the same question over and over again. It can drive you mad at times, but it's actually a, a powerful way of go, going through layers of experience or response to get to what's really true about uh, what the question is. And the question he had us ask is, what's right about judging? And, you know, at first we go, well, nothing, you know, I hate myself for judging. You know, I always thought I was bad or wrong. I shouldn't judge. And then I judge the judging and I just get caught in a a spiral. But to actually have to answer the question 
again and again what's right about judging was very revealing because I got to see that the reason that this gets stuck as a habit is it serves us in some way. It certainly did in the past, and we can perhaps see that, how we use the judging voice as a defense mechanism, or it seemed like the voice of wisdom, you know, we internalized authority figures, but it's still serving us now, or we wouldn't keep doing it. So really being willing to look at that, to see what's the hook in judging, what's the payoff in continuing to feed this judging voice and to start to to feel into that. Another way of phrase is, is what's the pleasantness in judging? The pleasant, when we're thinking about Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And you might find yourself saying, well, nothing, it's horrible, I don't like it, it's bad, it's mean, it's hurtful. But there's something there or else we wouldn't continue to do it. It, We mightn't be able to recognize it at first, but to start to look into what is going on. As I said, it can, you know, simply just feel like the voice of wisdom. I know what's right. You know, even as I'm judging myself insufficient, I still know that and know know what's deficient about ourselves. We can use it to keep ourselves out of trouble. As Byron Brown said earlier, it's a, it's a mechanism to, to keep ourselves safe or in control so we don't get too out there. When we judge others negatively, you know, that separation that comes, it, it, it feeds a sense of self, develops a sense of superiority about ourselves. We can often see this, that as we judge others for something, we don't have to look at that same tendency in ourselves even though it's often there. And, you know, that separation can feel safe. Oh, I'm not like them. Will you look at that? Huh, not me. And so we see the way it feeds a sense of self. So that can, that can often be somewhat clear to us, but still helpful to see what are the beliefs around that, what's being fed around that. Judging others as better than us and judging ourselves negatively is a really interesting place to begin to look, though. To see that there can actually be a sense of safety in feeling diminished. As we put others up and put ourselves down, it's a way we can hide. We don't have to step forward. We don't have to put our hand up in the hall and ask a question or offer to help someone because... They wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't think we, we had anything to offer. And so we can hide behind that. We can use uh, judging others as better than us to justify or feed feelings of envy or being a victim. So again, solidifying a sense of self. Even as, as, it's, it's, a, even as it's a diminished sense of self, We'd rather have that than not have a sense of self. You know, we'd rather have that diminished sense. Judging ourselves as unworthy, negative, self-judging. It's really interesting to see how we've internalized this message of not being good enough, of not being okay, that we've taken up from friends and family. And as I said, it's helpful to start to track, not to get lost in figuring out or 
tracking back all these different memories, but just this sense of how conditioned this experience is. You can perhaps see it running through your family or know it, you know, from other friends and how they talk about their experiences. And as I said, it can really justify a sense of withdrawing from life, from engaging, because we're not good enough. We wouldn't be accepted. So we can kind of hide in the judging of ourselves. And so that separation, that even though it's painful, it has a safety to it. We can say, oh, I don't want that. You know the famous Groucho Marx line, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. You know, it's like I'm not good enough and, and, and my very being isn't, isn't okay. And so we can start to track through our meditation that this sense of self as, as diminished as not okay is fed by this constant flow of the judging kind of thoughts, the not okay kind of thoughts. And we're not aware of it until we turn this lens of mindfulness on the inner experience and start to open to it, start to see and really feel the impact it can have to keep telling ourselves we're not okay, believing that we're not good enough. What we can start to see as we look at these kind of thoughts is our basic belief is what they are, are observations of the truth. They're not judgments. This is actually the way things are. I am not good enough. You know, this is not some subjective experience. I'm actually owning up to the truth of things. And we're so convinced of that, that we, because we think something, it must be true. Hopefully, two weeks in or wherever we are on this retreat, you've been disabused of that notion that because a thought has gone through your mind, that it's true. You know, how many times have we been proven wrong about our thoughts and what they're telling us? Yet the next one comes by and we latch onto that as being the truth of things. And sometimes we're so... um, with, we, we feel lost unless we have an opinion about something. That some experience happens, we see something, someone walks by our field of view, and that tendency to judge, that tendency to evaluate, is just immediate. We're not in control, we're not choosing, it's just right there, so unprompted. And because of that, you can see how it really blocks us actually knowing what is true about an experience because we're filtering it through all of these judgments and evaluations and concepts and perceptions and ideas about things. So our practice, mindfulness, gives us the possibility, as I keep saying, of turning towards towards this process and actually seeing it for what it is, beginning to look at this judging voice and seeing that all it is is a series of thoughts in the mind. And we've said this again and again, that thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. If you don't see them, if you believe in them, if you identify with them, boom, there's your worldview, right? Created on that moment. You see them as another arising, like a sound, like a body sensation. And what happens? Beginning, middle, 
end, to really start to see that and to also hold them, hold these judging thoughts in a bigger context. Instead of believing them as the truth of things, we start to see our practice and our journey as being on a path towards greater and greater freedom and happiness. Really starting to trust that for ourselves. You know, sometimes it's hard to see, but you wouldn't be here unless you had some sense of that, some sense of the possibility of happiness. And so these thoughts have to be put into that context of what we truly wish for ourselves, what we know to be possible. We know the possibility of some peace and ease and need to start to trust that more than these conditioned beliefs, these old habits of mind that we see we've just picked up and developed and held on to about who we are and what we're not. Again, from Byron Brown, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will, be f- then you will free yourself from the need for pro- positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judging critical voice. So this is the journey that we're on, to find this self-acceptance and to see, directly experience the freedom that can come as we open and acknowledge that. I'm sure you've all had moments of just really letting go and finding the the freedom, the happiness that comes when we drop that tendency. I know for myself, my most powerful experience of this happened when I did my first long metta retreat. A number of years ago now, had started hearing about people doing intensive metta weeks at a time and the power of that and kind of held it at arm's length. Who wants to spend all day going around living in a Hallmark card? You know, and my idea of metta was you said something like, may your day in every way just get better and better and, you know, life is one just big bed of roses and da, da, da. And I'm like, no thanks. You know, my critical judging mind, discerning wisdom mind was much too sharp to to try to do that kind of practice. But, of course, one realizes after a while that the very thing that one is pushing away is what what I needed the most. So I signed up for a six-week intensive meta retreat. Took myself off to to IMS all the way across the country and started the practice with a great deal of trepidation because I had this deep belief that I wasn't lovable, that I couldn't love or be loved. But I thought maybe this would fix me in some way. So I set off and started practicing. And it's a tough practice for any of you that have done it intensively to day after day, hour after hour, keep coming back to wishing well. It's a purification practice. All of the obstacles, the hindrances, anything that's in the way of you truly feeling happy will come up. And so it did for me. It was really challenging. My concentration was deepening. And that felt okay. But I'd report to my teachers, well, you know, a little bit of kindness or a kind of warm. You could 
you could call it meta if you really stretched the definition of the word. You know, you could kind of, you know, a little bit of friendliness. And they go, you know, they're very reassuring. Until one day I went in and sort of said that same kind of report where I was, you know, critical of myself. And my teacher said, why don't you try this? And I left the interview and knew how you do. You take this one sentence and you gnaw on it a little. What did he mean by that? What was the tone of voice again? And of course, change the tone of voice to be, why don't you try this? You know, and I, you know, my, my, the subtext was, nothing else has worked. Maybe she could try it. And, you know, then maybe something will happen. And I, you know, could see him kind of putting the papers away, you know, giving up. And as I went out to my walking path, just playing that over, and yes, he's right, I, and I knew it, I am hopeless, what, what, what was I thinking, this was a terrible thing to do, and I'm, you know, not lovable, can't love, can't practice, and just working myself up into a frenzy about this. And, you know, all these thoughts about escaping, you know, where can I go? You know, I'm at IMS, no, nowhere to go. I've sublet my house, I don't have a car, you know, just wanting escaping. And even the thought, could I pretend? You know, could I just pretend to do meta for the next, you know, just go in and I'd say something and they'd say yes and, you know, and just not do it because I couldn't do it. Uh, you know, and, and just really seeing that it felt like I was at just at the edge of this, well, I was actually on the way down, this abyss of just self-deprecation, uh, self-judging, self-criticism. And it was so familiar. It was like this old coat that I could put on. And it was, even though it was stinky and smelly, it was so familiar, I was just ready to put it on and to go there. And then something happened that was different. These thoughts different kinds of thoughts started to come. And now in reflection, it probably was because I'd been doing the metta practice because it had never happened before. I had the thought, you know, this is a very familiar place. You could do this. You could dive down into this abyss of self-loathing and you could spend many an hour there, familiar place, you know, and it, you could, I could see it, you know, not happy, but some, something was drawing me to that. That's kind of what I mean about the pleasantness of going there. The next thought was, but at some point you'll come out. You'll, something will shift, whether it's an hour from now or hours or days or weeks. Something will shift. It always has. And then the main, the, the real insight, the voice of metta, what would it take to get from here to there without spending the hours in the abyss of self-loathing? And I realized what it would take would be I'd have to accept myself and I'd have to accept my practice. Because if I didn't, I was just going to suffer. And I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't practice then. I couldn't continue. So it was a really stark choice between, you know, just drowning in self-loathing or accepting myself. And I just felt myself, you know, you take a, a, a gulp, a deep breath, and you take that step and just say, I have to. It's too much suffering otherwise. And I just continued my walking and dropped that whole story. And I'd love to say, you know, then the sun came out and I loved myself, you know, immediately. It didn't happen that way. But I was able to keep going. And that retreat was enormously powerful for me because of that acceptance of who I was and just to be able to say, this is the amount of metta that I can feel right now. 
So this acceptance of who we are, this forgiveness of our past hurts and, 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 and actions that were hurtful to ourselves and others, so important why we teach the forgiveness practice here that James taught the other day. Really very important. And so and another huge area in the, the judging is accepting others. Accept ourselves, we accept others. And in our practice we start to see, as Carol and Guy have been talking about, how we create the world through our sense of self and our perceptions. One of the important things in starting to work with accepting others is recognizing that they might have a different reality than we do. This is such a hard thing for us to get. Again, we're so immersed in our reality, it can be really hard to recognize that there's a different reality, that someone might be having a very different experience. And that whatever actions that they're doing that to us seem neurotic or annoying or you know impactful to us, are done in some way to bring them some degree of whatever, excuse me, happiness, safety, um, some sense of control of their environment. And so just that sense of realizing that, of, of stepping back from our solidity of worldview and opening to the fact that we, we can't know what someone else is experiencing or why they're acting the way they were. And just to feel more of connection rather than separation. You know, here at Spirit Rock, I I hate to break the news to you, but things aren't always perfect. People don't do everything uh, skillfully all the time. There are miscommunications, things that happen that shouldn't happen. And, you know, so many times I'll get an email or a message or be at a meeting where something has happened that, that's, that doesn't seem skillful or the, the, the appropriate response. And the immediate response can be, oh, why did they do that? You know, they should have known better. They should have had this information. They should have been prepared. And, and then you get the next round of information where it's like, oh, now I understand, you know, that they didn't know this or they hadn't been told or whatever. And so I've really learned I can't just jump to conclusions about why things happened the way they did because I don't know the full story. I don't know the full uh, picture. I can remember working with someone on, on one of these retreats where she was having a lot of difficulty with her work meditation partners. And, you know, many of us can know exactly the way, I was referring to this kind of thing the other day, the dishwasher should be stacked or how clean, you know, the floor should be to be finished. Um, And she was just really suffering around it because you're in silence, you're not in control. How do you work with that? And she said just one day it came to her, lower your standards a little and relax. And it was such a help just to say, you know, it's okay. It's okay the way it is. I don't have to be in control of everything. The Dalai Lama is such a a good teacher for us in this uh, 
way of working with and accepting others. You know, he, he, he seems like some kind of miracle worker. When he meets people, everyone falls in love with him. And you, you, people ask him, what is it you do? And he says, I don't do anything. I just look for what's common between us instead of what's, what's different. He says, try to cultivate a deep recognition of the equality of all beings, their potential to be free, their right not to suffer. Imagine if we met everyone with that thought in mind about their potential to be free and their right not to suffer instead of seeing them as being in the way or, you know, some not, not okay in some sort of way. So it's a whole process of looking at this tendency to judge inner and outer, um, to work with accepting others, recognizing that we can't know their experience or their reality, and particularly to work with accepting ourselves. Because in some ways, I see this as, as the greatest form of suffering that this judging takes, is criticizing, judging ourselves as deficient, as not worthy. Really encourage you to reflect a little, if this is a tendency of mine, to look at these questions that I've been asking and particularly, why do we want to keep criticizing ourselves? I mean, if you stepped back and look, looked with, with kind of impartiality, if that was possible, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to continue to berate and, and judge and be angry with ourselves? Why? You know, judging others, you can kind of see. You know, it's easier to see the payoff. As they say, the best offense is a, the best defense is a good offense. It's like get them before they get me. You know, out there and pushing away, kind of thing. But to keep judging ourselves, what what is the payoff in that? What 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 are we getting? What's the hook? To really look at this internalized message that we're not okay, how we've taken in the voice, the, the attitude, the message from others, from wherever it was, and that it often happened at a very early age when we didn't have defenses, where we were the victims of, of abuse, emotional abuse, or physical or even sexual abuse, and we didn't have the defenses to take care of ourselves. So our only alternative was to submit to agree. That was, that was actually a form of defense. And so we see how it co- goes in at this early age and this message of not okayness, you're not good enough, you're not this, you're not that, why aren't you like so-and-so? You know, they get A's on their, their scorecard or they got selected for the team. And so we take that in. Mindfulness gives us the opportunity, the potential of feeling the suffering of that. And this is the doorway. Usually it's so painful, we, we, we either believe it and we just, we're just lost in it, or we try to deny it, stuff it down. So just to let ourselves be willing to feel the pain of that internalized message and to actually see if the pain or the suffering can be the doorway to compassion. If a friend came to you with these same stories about feeling unworthy, feeling unloved, you'd be there for them. Just, you know, hold them with compassion. Share with them your sense of appreciation of them. 
seeing if we can do that for ourselves, sometimes even holding our heart there and feeling the hurt, the, 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 the judging that's there, and just being willing to bring the compassion in. And as we deepen in our ability to feel that, to feel a sadness, to open to it with compassion, as we deepen our metta practice, that's, that, that it keeps affirming our wish to be happy. May I be happy. It's like mindfulness can create this choice point. If you look at intention, as Guy was teaching this morning, and you can start to see this choice. On one hand, metta, our practice, our intention for ourselves, our aspiration. May I be happy. May I be free. And then I'm worthless. I'm not okay. I'm, it's hopeless. Which do we choose? I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous. It's like, which do I choose? Hmm, you know, may I be happy or I'm worthless. But to see that we keep choosing the sense of deficiency and to start to understand why that, that, that tendency and to keep feeding and nourishing the voice of wisdom that says we deserve to be happy. It's our birthright, as the Dalai Lama says, to be happy. So we find strategies, ways to work with this that allow us to deepen and open and start to lessen this tendency. It's really important to have a sense of humor when you're working in this territory because it can seem so painful. You can feel it in the body, really feel a sense of sharpness or constriction that comes when this tendency is strong. For myself, one of the practices that I did that I found helpful, I was on a retreat at IMS and just noticed this judging coming all the time. And particularly every time I walked into the dining room, I'd see some aspect of the dining room that they didn't, I felt, take care of properly. And the thoughts would just come and I did everything. You know, I felt it in the body. I noticed it's already, you know. And it would still just, it was, you could see the conditioned nature. It was just there immediately. Finally, I took up this practice. Joseph, when he talks about judging, he'd say, and then you would add, and the sky is blue. And I think that was meant to be, you know, it's just another thought, sky, sky is blue. But I'd say, yes, the sky is blue, and this is true, you know. This is bad, this is wrong. So that didn't work for me. So my practice became, every time I had this judging thought, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. If you know IMS, little chipmunks, these little squirrel-like things that are about two inches long, and they run around. They're so fragile and vulnerable, but they're so, so sweet little eyed. (laughs) And so I'd just say, and it would just make me smile, and I could see that the the thought, if if I could add that to it, it didn't have the piercing impact, and it would just pass. You could see the, the judging thought could be like, you know, dropping this, this huge boulder into the, the pool of our mind and waves and ripples and storms. You could see it sometimes just like dropping a pedal, pebble, little ripple. And sometimes the judge, judging thought is there and it just has no impact. You just see it for what it is. It's just judging. And so we start to see we have a choice about this have a choice to see it clearly and to begin to just unhook, disentangle from that tendency 
and see that this is the direction of our path and practice. Greater happiness, greater love, greater self-acceptance, and that this is the foundation for liberation and for happiness. I want to end with a poem I found a little while ago by Derek Walcott. It's actually born in uh, uh, St. Lucia in the Caribbean, and it's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself, arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome, and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your own life. So let's just sit and feast on this inner experience that is our life, our inner being. your attention, time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.